Matt, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. I wanted to start with kind of something foundational for you. I know that you moved out to LA after high school to try and become a musician. And one thing that we've noticed in this podcast throughout 150 interviews is that people who are musicians have the ability, an ability to focus that is not common. And I think that ability to focus shows through your drawing, through your many hobbies and interests, triathlons, et cetera, including building businesses. So how do you think that music has informed your ability to focus? I think just like anything, music is a creative outlet and it's one of the ways that I like expressing myself. I like expressing myself through art. And I think the parallel between entrepreneur is entrepreneurs and, and creativity is it just has to do with you know, solving problems. And as an entrepreneur, you're always solving problems. And as someone who's creative and you're writing music or you're practicing someone else's music, it's still about solving problems. If I'm trying to learn someone else's music, I'm like, man, how did that person do that technically? I'm like, man, that guitar, like run that riff, dude, how do they do that? And it's just a matter of, you know, muscle memory and kind of doing it and kind of following this process. But business, I think is the same thing. I think that's one of the main reasons why people in all your, your interviews that they have these creative outlets too, because they just are built in a way in which they just love to solve problems. Yeah. I've only recently kind of as an adult started learning a bit of music and not something I've taken extremely seriously, but I mean, there's a piano here, so or at least that far along on the journey. One thing I've noticed that I think is really similar is the progression as well. So one, they're both like infinite games in the sense that there's always more to get better. But the other thing in terms of like foundational building blocks is it's just so obvious over time how much more you can get done without thinking. So when you think about like starting your first business, it's like the condensation and the encapsulation of like projects become tasks, right? So like setting up like legal structure and logos and branding and messaging and like all of that is like, your first project is like months and months of things to figure out. And then there are things that are like done and like, then it becomes a checklist. It's just like a task. And the same thing that happens with music, right? Like it's like you learn something for the very first time and that's like all of your concentration. Then you're building the amount of things that you can get done without any cognitive effort whatsoever. And that's what allows like progress to be made very quickly. For sure. I, I love that, that you mentioned that it's an infinite game versus finite game. I think, was it Simon Sinek that talked about that? Or it, I think a lot of people talked about that, but you're absolutely right. There are so many parallels to most any creative endeavor and creating a business. I mean, you've got to have creativity. You've got to have some sort of structure. And just like you mentioned, when you get into creating a business for the first time, you're kind of, you know, stumbling through some of these things. Maybe you've gone through an accelerator. Maybe you went to school, you learn about business. And as you progress and you get more experience and you put more repetition into it, it gets a little bit easier. The problems get harder, but that's the same thing in music and any kind of creative endeavor, you push yourself to do harder, more difficult things. And it's the same thing in business. When you're leveling up, everyone's like, oh man, is this going to get easier? Like, no, nah, it doesn't necessarily get easier. It just gets harder. Same thing with cycling. The mantra there is it doesn't get any easier. You just get faster. How much did you practice and continue to like put effort and time and energy into music during like these kind of critical scaling years of these businesses. 
It's like as things are taking off and like, do I spend an hour of good energy and good attention? And maybe you can refra- you have a reframe in terms of it's spending time or if it's actually creating more res- restoration or something. Uh, but that's something I've personally been struggling with, right? I love playing. I love learning the music, but I'm like on a day where there's an infinite list of things that I could be doing. And each of them has some clear, you know, ROI of like, if I got that done today rather than tomorrow, here's the benefits, the bottom line being pretty direct, but still like the hobby and the passion and the things that like nurture the soul of music. What was your kind of vision or not vision? Like, how did you frame that during the journey? Especially these, you know, there's people counting on you. Are you like being selfish by playing music because there's people who depend on you? Like, how did you think about that along the way? Uh, I'll be honest, 100% honest with you. Music went to zero. (laughs) It did. So I was out in LA and... I was working in the music industry, TV and film, you know, doing all this stuff. And then the startup happened. And when we started to get some serious market traction, my co-founder and I were like, all right, this is going to be it. And we just knew it. it. It hit us like lightning. And it was, it was one of those things where I was like, all right, I'm going to go all in on this. I'm going to burn all the boats and I'm going to do this full time. And my prioritization was like, startup, family, and health. And that was like, it was literally like nothing else. It was nothing else. And music was like, I sold a bunch of equipment. I mean, I still have a lot, but I sold a bunch of it. And I would pick up a guitar here and there, strum a couple of things just to get my mind off something business related and go right back to the business. So, you know, if you can find some balance between, you know, finding music and in business, then that's great. But I think what for me, you can't a hundred percent always focus on business because then you'll just get burned out and you've got to be able to take mental breaks here and there. So for me, it was exercise and like working out because I realized that I needed to take care of myself. And so fitness became like meant like health wise, mental, physical health that became like number one, then it was business and then it was family. And now I, I get shipped it to take care of myself, family, and then everything else. But that's one of the things that I just had to do at the time. And if music is one of those things that help you in terms of your mental health or just kind of get you into the mind of, all right, I'm grinding too hard at this thing at work, um, working on my business, working on my startup. But if music can take you away from that momentarily and that's your thing, then you got to make time for it. You just got to do it. It's interesting that you prioritized, at least in your mind, fitness over business during the period that you were scaling the company. I'm not sure there's a question there, but that that's interesting that you would say that most people, you know, like leave that to the very last. And then once they make their money, they go out and like work hard to get fit. But I guess like it being so informative to your mental health, it uh, actually helped the other two dramatically. For sure. I realized I was probably like a year and a half into the Procter U journey and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, holy crap, who's this guy? I gained like, I don't know, close to a hundred pounds, like a hundred pounds heavier. And I was like, oh my gosh, dude, I'd stop working out. I just like lived at the office. I would probably like, Elon Musk would probably give me a pat on the back. Like, oh yeah, this is probably how you're supposed to live your life. <laughs> you know? But man, it just doesn't work for me. And my health was like, crap. And so I realized that if I didn't take care of my health, then I couldn't do anything else. You've got to be, you've got to be healthy. You've got to be able to take care of yourself before you can take care of anything else. And that's the way that I think of it. And so that's why it's been top of mind, high, highest priority 
if I want to be able to help people, help my family be there, I got to be able to do it. One thing that I wanted to ask you about was during your time in LA, you worked for the Geek Squad. You were W2 while you were working on your music career. And one thing that I really respect about you and could feel about you when we met in person is just your like overall joyous kind of attitude and like a smile on your face kind of thing. And I was wondering how you stay happy, like as a W2, when you feel like you're kind of meant for more. And I don't know if that's how you were at that time or really what the story was of the Geek Squad, but I was just wondering like how you kind of stayed happy. Yeah, I think in whatever you do, whether it's working for the Geek Squad or making French fries or whatever, there are always opportunities for you to learn and get better and exceed and just do things. While I was working at the Geek Squad, I was a computer technician and I was really fascinated with just learning how that business operated. So I got put in a position where I could roll that out across the various stores and so forth. And then I wanted to become the best computer technician in this area. And so I just challenged myself, all right, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm providing the best amount of like customer service? And am I making sure that I'm the most efficient? I'm not getting what were called redo rates or re-rolls in, in technician terms where you have to go back out and like do something because it broke again. And so you just challenge yourself and wherever you are and whatever you do, and you just start to like work your way on up. It just, in my experience, it just naturally organically happens. The harder you work, and if you come to this thing with an open attitude, open mind, uh, with some humility and just kind of ability to want to learn this thing and just be good at it, those things keep me motivated. It just, it, I had opportunities to continue on with Best Buy and continue forward, but I just found that your attitude and the way that you approach things and the way that you look at any situation, it really helps. Yeah, there's a coaching program that I'm a part of right now. This guy was actually on the podcast recently. His name was Vash. And he has a line in his coaching program, how you view what you do influences how you do what you do. It's a nice like quip to kind of encapsulate yeah. a lot of those ideas. So that's been top of mind for me a lot lately when it's like, no, you know, when we'll get into this now, really the Proctor story and, you know, the birth of that. But even when you are doing your own thing, there's never a time when every piece of it is pleasant. So you still have to have that frame and kind of whether you're at the Geek Squad or your own thing, that problem doesn't go away of like, having tasks that aren't your highest flow state, perfect joy, whatever. And so like keeping that perspective, if your perspective is that robust in a less ideal setting, I'm not saying that it's, I'm just on a spectrum here and very cool. So let's actually get into the birth. Like where were you when the idea for Proctor or the backstory, the problem presented itself, just wherever you were, there's a point in your life when you weren't working on this and there's a point where you were, how did, sure. what's the transition? Yeah. So one of the things I talk about when it comes to founders, and you just mentioned the thing about when you're doing monotonous things and like, you just got to be able to get through it, grit, right? So, you know, grit, ability to learn from your mistakes, to take feedback and your team. And so one of the things I found really early on was a great team member and his name is Jared Morgan. He was my co-founder for Proctor U. We'd known each other since middle school and we went to the University of Florida together worked on a couple of entrepreneur type endeavors. And the one that we were working on was actually called People City. And that was a, an environment in which test takers or students could come together and study, and then they could go take a test afterwards. And we try to create this all-in-one experience where 
we would integrate some of the the textbooks and, and the learning materials and course materials that you could kind of collaboratively study within this platform and then go take a test. And now that I think about it, it's like, all right, well, that's not the greatest idea in the world. But what was funny about that is that the test taking part, which ended up being ProctorU, ended up being the thing that took off. And so him and I were working on this platform for this institution, this university, and we noticed that the most popular piece of this platform was this test taking piece. And so because of that, we were in a great time to be able to do this too. This was right around the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. A lot of people were going back to school. A lot of people were trying to seek, you know, higher degrees and so forth because, you know, they were laid off or something bad had happened. And so we were at this really interesting intersection of, of people hitting higher education really hard. And then higher education was in this transitional period because of the advent of broadband that they were able to take their classes online. And most of it was online, except for the fact of being able to take your exam. You could go do all your course material, interact with your instructors, professors online. But when it came time to take that test, they had to get inconvenience. They had to go somewhere. They had to go back to class. They had to go find a proctor. They had to go to a library or something to that effect. And there was no solution out there at the time. There was none. And so we were just at the right place at the right time to start up this. And we did it for that one online college. And then we talked about it at a conference. Uh, Jared, actually, he went to Notre Dame. It was a conference about higher education. And he had the keynote. He went to talk about it. And at the end of that keynote, so many institutions came up to him and was like, hey, could you do this for us? We're like, oh, wow, okay, so this is something. I mean, there's product market fit there. These institutions are begging for us to do this. And so right out of the right out of the gate, we had 10 schools that just wanted to try this with us. We didn't know how I was gonna, how we were gonna do that or how we were gonna even make that work, but hey, you know what, we'll figure it out. And so that's what we did. We started just figure it out. You know, the technology really wasn't there. So our roles is, Jared is really great with strategy, sales and marketing. I'm really good with technology and operations. And so that's how we split the line division of duties. And so he would bring them in. I'd make it real and make it happen. And then what was that scaling period like from, I don't know, 10 institutions to kind of like a, a nationwide company? Because I know that you, your role really developed from uh, like in terms of title, but also, you know, in terms of what you actually have to do going from just being two people to being hundreds. And yeah. I guess I think a better way of framing the question is like, how do you advise founders today who have had that success and are scaling their company to, you know, kind of reinvent themselves to be this new, to fill these new roles that occur when you scale? I see. Okay. So one of the things that I learned early on was that there is no need necessarily to reinvent the wheel. If there's something that works, you can take advantage of that thing that works, translate it, use it, and mold it to whatever you're doing such that when, you know, you apply that, those same principles, it still works for your business, even though it worked for another business. So for example, there was no one that did online proctoring at the time, but I took my experience as a manager and a leader from Geek Squad and thought about that service model. All right, well... How difficult or how different is it 
being somebody who watches exams versus a computer technician is fixing computers, somebody's watching exams. But a lot of the tools that they would use to communicate and help the customer, help the student, help facilitate that process, a lot of those are actually the same. And then if you think about it from the types of performance metrics of what makes a computer technician good and what makes a test exam proctor good, some of the same things, some of the same processes. So you can take aspects of other businesses that you see and straight like copy them and just mold them if they're working and apply them to your business and go forward. So I'd use all of the skills that I acquired from an operations perspective from Geek Squad, Best Buy, Fortune 500 company. And I thought about it. All right. So if I'm a two-person company, I don't need all this structure and all this crap, SOPs, all this stuff right now, but I will one day. And so I planned it out. I was like, all right, when I hit this growth point, I'm probably going to feel the wheels like starting to shake off. So I'm going to need to add some of that structure in here. Same thing with as we continue to grow and we continue to scale, I had a plan for that. Was it always right? No, was it always right? But that's the fun and being a startup, right? You get to kind of figure that out and you get to build the car as you're like traveling down the road. You hopefully don't crash it. But um, no, that's that's how I did it with scaling. But it's the same thing. Like I, I challenge anybody to try to find there anything that's truly unique or new. There aren't that many things, quite honestly. Most of the ideas you can think of, someone's probably already done it. Someone's doing it. Now with the advent of, of generative AI, like don't be scared of that. Embrace that. Use it. Take advantage of it. I mean, you know. That's been a lot of the what I've been going through in a good way, going through as an experiencing, right? I think going through might impl imply some like negative connotation, but that's what I've been experiencing a lot of and like realizing. And it's a very extremely powerful like realization basically, because on the flip side, you can basically hyper-focus on being, you know, best in the world and innovative at like one very narrow set of things. Like there's absolutely no reason to be innovative. For example, it's very easy for people to understand this with like accounting, right? Like there's no reason to innovate how, to, how you do accounting at your company. Like that's like a system that the world has decided is like how you should manage your money is this thing called yep. accounting and everyone understands it. And you want to manage your money, just do this. And basically for everything except like the core unique thing for you all, right? That was like, how do we proctor exams remotely with all these benefits, et cetera? Like that's the thing to really focus on like a unique system that is world-class and proprietary and special and everything else in terms of like how to just do QA, right? Like that's the first thing that came to mind to me when you're talking about the different, the similarities between someone providing service for, you know, tech and someone providing this service of proctoring is like quality assurance. Like how do you make sure that an employee is trained on doing a thing such that it meets a standard and they're not the founder? Like that's been done a million times over by every company because that's what everyone does. So it's like right. we've been implementing EOS at my business, which is a, a framework for managing internal operations and how to set goals and how often you should have meetings and how to do an org chart and how to hire. It's like, all of these 15 major questions that like any business has to go through. And I'm like, oh, that's like, we could have spent 20 years trying to figure this out and we'd be nowhere nearly as good as this. So it's just a lot of like surrendering ego and it's exciting. It's like, oh, amazing. Like instead of being like, oh, another thing I have to figure out, it's like another thing that I have no interest in figuring out because someone else has already done it. And it's so exciting every time you find like another one of those little pieces and even marketing and sales. It's like, here's a methodology for sales training. Here's a methodology for this. You just like buy it, buy a book, 
pay for consultants, like any of the different solutions, then you just move so much faster. Agreed. Agreed. But the one thing I will say for the, the people that are starting businesses and like, oh yeah, let's try this. Just try this. Oh, this new thing. You have to be very careful about those things that you try. And I always recommend what Jim Collins calls firing bullets at various things instead of like firing a cannon. So you try something and you just try little bits of it to see if it's like hitting where you want to hit. And then, all right, let's go all in on this process or this technology or whatever that may be instead of, because one thing that I do see is that, all right, in technology specifically, there's like this new cool type technology that comes out. Yeah, we're going to go try that. And then, oh, something else comes on. Well, we're going to go try that. And you do a lot of this, you know, course correcting. And then you eventually hopefully get to where you want to go. But man, if you would adjust just tested the waters on that new thing to see if it actually could solve your problem and then dove all in on it. And then instead of having to switch like a couple months later, you would have gotten further faster. No, I think that's super true. It's about being kind of disciplined and selective about like, it's not just saying this is a methodology and therefore it's proven and therefore it's good and therefore we should adopt it. Or this could be cool or could be useful. It's about focus. Was that a kind of like a natural strength for you to be like, this is frivolous and not actually focused on the goal or... How did you all kind of approach staying on the main, keeping the main thing? How did you kind of operationalize that discipline? I think that discipline was something that we tried to build into our culture immediately right off the bat. Like Jared and myself, we got together and we're like, all right, so what is our mission? Our mission is to be able to deliver exams anywhere in the world, anytime in the world. All right. What are our values? Well, integrity, service, simplicity, and fun. And so along the lines of that simplicity pillar, we call them pillars and silly values at the time, but we were like, all right, if we want to try to keep things as simple as possible, then we're not going to be going all over the place, trying all these new things that could be more complicated or add additional complications to our processes. And so I think one of the things that benefited me and one of the things that I recommend for most startups and founders and companies is to have some sort of guiding North Star that kind of you weigh all of your decisions against, regardless of what that is. It could be a mantra, it could be a mission, it could be your why, it could be whatever that is. So that when you are doing these things and you're presented with these new opportunities, processes, technologies, fancy new objects, customers to go after, strategic, whatever it may be, you can bounce that off of your kind of North Star, your values, your mission and be like, all right, does that fit? If it does, all right, let's go after that. If it doesn't, well, let's reconsider. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because kind of one of the last decisions that you made in ProctorU was around your exit. And you had multiple offers, a few different you know, terms, et cetera. And I think it comes back to integrity because you made a decision to go with what I believe is a lower offer for the sake of integrity. And so can you kind of talk or give details as much as you'd like about that decision and like, and sticking to that North Star, even when the future of your decision won't really impact you, except for maybe negatively in terms of financial success. And just like when we got into the business, getting out of a business was, it was all about timing. The pandemic showed that the need to be able to remotely administer exams in a secure fashion was something that the industry needed, that everybody needed. And so if you could, as you could imagine, there were lots of different offers that came because of that. And like you mentioned, Kyle, like we didn't go with the biggest one 
because we didn't buy into the vision of what the, that potential acquirer wanted to do with the company. One of the things that we realized early on as well is that you are nothing without your team and the people that helped you build this company are critical to its survival, to everything. And those people, those key employees, those early employees, they're absolutely critical and they should be taken care of. So that's what we thought of. We were like, all right, well, if we go with this bigger company, the first thing they wanted to do is fire like all these people. You want to do what? Like this person, if you fired that person, like, I don't know, <laughs> it's going to, you know, they just, there's these things, right? You know, with anything that if it's a good fit, but yeah, I guess, I guess you're a ramble a little bit, but you're, you go back to that, I guess the integrity pillar, but it's more than that. It's just kind of being a good human being, right? Like you don't want to, don't ever go into these situations and you wouldn't, I wouldn't want to work with somebody that cared more about the company than the people that built it because you have to realize that, you know, you can't do this on your own. I don't care who you are. You can be named like top billionaire in the world or whatever. That person didn't do it by themselves. And if they did say that they did it by themselves, it probably full of crap. So there's people that helped along the way. And if you want to sleep good at night, know that you took care of those people too. I think that's a, such an important message or message and just having the pillar. And that's the importance of having the pillars and the values is that everything can be framed against them. That's the test, right? That comes over time is you're presented with a circumstance that could go many directions and do the values guide you towards a decision that you feel good about. Are there any other companies that you kind of were important to you in terms of the way you modeled or maybe a particular entrepreneur who additional kind of pieces that you borrowed from other people. Like, I like the way that this person handled hiring or I like the way that this company, like who were you trying to emulate if to the extent that there were other companies or examples? We ended up reading a ton of books. Like I said, we were heavily influenced by Jim Collins, Simon Sinek, Southwest Airlines, Chick-fil-A. Yeah, I know Chick-fil-A might be like controversial or whatever, but I mean, they have a really great customer service model. Not in this company. Yeah, I think we... <laughs> <I think> we <laughs> At least like, I mean, maybe 5% penetration of all podcasts have covered Chick-fil-A. I don't yeah. know. It comes up a lot. It's a great organization, like outstanding customer service model. Yeah. So companies like that, we studied various aspects of what they did to try to deliver the best possible experience that we could. Well, I mean, we studied Amazon too. I mean, like we would constantly read all these different books. And then during our quarterly kind of all hands meetings, we would bring back nuggets of what we thought about from those books. And then we would talk about how we may incorporate some of those elements into our business. Yeah, this is an interesting idea you're giving me. And I think that a lot of people, especially in like startups, it's kind of like a cliche or like something people poke fun at, especially like in pitching competitions. It's like, we're like the you know, the Uber for XYZ, or we're like the Shopify, but for X. And I think what's actually more useful is basically taking like the operational and the culture, right? We're like the culture of Chick-fil-A or the culture of Amazon or the culture of Southwest, right? But we're not a restaurant, we're not an airline. It's basically a more useful application of that thing that a lot of people poke fun at that's actually pretty useful. Is It's like how Chick-fil-A would run a SaaS or how Southwest would run a SaaS. Like, no, that's way better because what that does is it speaks to a differentiator, right? 
Like you wouldn't expect to say that you're like Chick-fil-A if you're outside of the food industry, right? Most of the time, to your point, you're saying I'm like Uber because I do something in regards to mobility. No, exactly. It's, like on, it's on the cultural side or the operational side. Yeah, yeah Chick for sure. We run our company like Chick. Yeah, I like that. Chick-fil-A, but for SaaS. <laughs> Here's a billion dollars. <laughs> That's right. My next pitch meeting. Yeah. I'm going to start booking pitch meetings left, right, and center just with, with that story. Might as well. Well, you are currently getting a lot of pitches, helping a lot of entrepreneurs at Techstars. And I want to start the kind of segment on Techstars with something that you saw when you first walked into the Techstars office, which is Give First. Why did that stand out to you? And I know that you found it to be true. And how are you kind of doing that with your own practice now, being the managing director there in Birmingham? Yeah, that, that's a good call out. So when I was operating with Proctor U, I was just heads down executing. I honestly, I, I didn't interface with the ecosystem, Birmingham. I didn't give back. I was just executing. And when we sold and I exited the company, I really felt this need to be able to do that, to give back and to help and to just, if, if I could help the right founders, the right people become successful. I really truly believe that's what's going to help move the needle for humanity. It's about making a boatload of people super successful. And then those people hopefully doing the same. And I'm hoping that will raise the tide for prosperity for humanity. And so in accordance with kind of that mission and that goal, I started to work with Innovation Depot. That's a Birmingham Accelerator, and I started work with EPA Alabama Launchpad, and that led me to to Techstars. Nate and Brooke were running it at the time. They'd heard about some of the stuff that I was doing in the community, and so they offered me a position as the entrepreneur in residence. Uh, this was last year. When I walked into the building, I saw on the wall said hashtag Give First, and I was like, "Holy crap! Like that's a sign right there." Because that's what I've been trying to do. I'm just trying to give back and with zero expectation return, just try to help as many people as I possibly can. And so when I saw that, I was like, all right, let's see if this is actually what's up. And no, it truly was Nate and Brooke absolutely poured their heart and soul into those 10 companies and it was inspiring. And I was right there alongside them to witness it. And when Nate got promoted in Techstars to become the general manager, head of product for Techstars, and he said, hey, Matt. I really loved you know, what I saw when you were working with our companies and would love you to consider taking over my spot in my program here at Alabama Energy Tech. And I was like, heck yeah, I, I'm it. This is really cool. It's all about giving first to founders, helping them, being able to take all of the wealth of the world and all the knowledge and influence and help democratize that to the most people. We want to be able to make the most investments yearly, just a crazy amount to be able to get the money out there, to be able to help these companies, to be able to help these founders, help these entrepreneurs do great things. And hopefully we become the largest early stage venture capital company like in the world by doing that and being able to help as many companies as we possibly can. So can you tell us just for the entrepreneurs out there who are listening to this episode, 
Who are you looking for? Who should reach out to Matt J in Birmingham? What kind of companies are you looking to fund and find? Well, for tech stars, my focus is energy tech, climate tech, sustainability, and customer experience. So if you're a startup that falls into one of those categories, my application is open for a little less than a month. We close it then early June. And then we run program from September to December. And then we look all over again. So we're always looking for companies. But I'm extending the offer. I'm willing to help any company. I don't care if you're a small business, medium-sized business, startup. You don't have to even be tech. Like, whatever that is, you want somebody to bounce our ideas off of, you want somebody to give you their two cents on your pitch deck, reach out to me. I'm here. I'm more than happy to help me give back any way I possibly can. I have to check in with this project, but a relative was raising for a climate idea I forgot about a while ago. So I have to ping him and see if that's still a thing. But do you have an opinion in general on the kind of bootstrapped versus venture debate? It's a broad question. Yeah. Were you trying to say on the debate side, which one is better or which one is, which one gets more traction or what, like, like cut, focus it a little bit. Like there's different kind of ways to think about it. I think about it in the way that I will advocate for whichever method works best for your company, your vertical, your situation, right? There are some entrepreneurs that's like, all right, have been there, done that. Okay. You got some money, bootstrap it go away and get to the finish line, taking as little capital as possible. But then there's some things that are super capital intensive that require partnerships, money, lots of marketing, like crazy stuff. Like some of this deep tech stuff, you have to like get millions of dollars just to get like to your first engineering sample. And then like, once you get to the engineering sample, you got to get through some certification process. And then the customers of this thing are like these massive mega corporations that buy in, you know, millions. And so you have to be able to get up to scale. And so the average person can't just do that without assistance. You know, you have to have help. So it depends. Like going back to like, you know, I'm agnostic towards it. I'm with, go with whatever works best for you in your situation, your company. I think that's a good answer. That's more or less what something I was, it was along the lines of what I was looking for, like in terms of an opinion on the subject matter. Okay. Uh, one question, I don't know if this is quote, like a bonus question or or not, is you told the story of how your co-founder went to this conference and that kind of like a very serendipitous unlock for the business in terms of all sorts of people being made aware of what you need, all sorts of the right people, right? You can go shout at in front of a Walmart and make all sorts of people aware of what you do, but it's not necessarily that targeted. Is there another kind of random chance moment where just something you're chose to go to another conference or right place, right time for another like unlock, whether that's on the Proctor story or just like another moment of a serendipitous encounter that really altered the course? I mean, there's so many of these types of situations that, that have occurred, I guess, in, in the course of my experience through Proctor U and through life or whatnot, but that was definitely one that kind of validated the products. That was product market fit. Another one was getting our first big customer, landing that customer, being able to use the money from that and the name and everything. Because once you land one of these like large customers, a lot of times that is like validation at that level that you're a good product, you're worthy. Well, if that company uses guys, then those types of situations definitely. And then making your first like super key hires where 
you, let's say like you're in a sales presentation and your brand new VP of sales, like just kills it. And you're like, dang, yeah, that was higher right there. That's like, that's legit. And then all of a sudden that just opens the gate because now you are like, yeah, I don't have to handle that, that anymore. I can trust that person to make all those sales calls and like hit the ground hard and do that. Same thing on the engineering side, like when you release a product and you know, you've gotten through the first like maybe wave of bugs or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're looking at all the people that are using the platform and they're actually liking the platform. You're like, wow, okay. And all along the journey though, in your, when you're doing these points, you have to enjoy them too. So this journey of entrepreneurship, startup, it is a marathon. I mean, goes and goes, you will experience the highest highs, the lowest lows, and you have to enjoy the inflection points and all these what you call serendipitous moments along the way because it just keeps rolling. You, you have to like stop sometimes and just appreciate these moments as they come. Absolutely. I want to bounce back a little bit now to Bur the Birmingham ecosystem. You're very plugged into the city, the startup like culture. We actually had a guy named Chris Hively on a few days ago and his mission is kind of to develop ecosystems, entrepreneurial ecosystems around the country. And he had some really great things to say about Birmingham, but I'm curious from your perspective, like where are we kind of in the life cycle from your perspective and what do we need to do and get right in these next couple of years to really set Birmingham up for, you know, a future of success? That's a great question. And the really cool thing about where Birmingham is right now is it is in a really good spot. And I say that because there is a lot of corporate support. You need good corporate support for a lot of reasons, right? They're going to, they're going to be customers. They're going to help sponsor things. They're going to invest. They're going to do a lot of things. So you have your big companies, right? right. And with the big companies and the money and everything associated with that, you've got, they help feed the people that are coming up. And the great thing is there's a lot of people coming up. And there's programs that those big corporate sponsors are feeding to create these programs, like Alabama Launchpad. We have so many different accelerators in Birmingham now, from Techstars to, to Prosper, Generator, Endeavor, all of these, Bronze Valley, like all of these accelerators that are popping up. So that's creating the early stage successful folks. And because they're going to these accelerators and they're staying within the Birmingham ecosystem, that's creating more talent, that's creating more jobs, that's creating more opportunities. That's just creating more of that ecosystem. And as these companies start to get bigger and more companies keep coming in, that's what creates this cycle. And then all of a sudden, when these startups that we're dealing with right now, they become medium-sized businesses, large businesses, they have exits, they stay in the area, and it kind of feeds the cycle. And so some of the wins that we've had in the past couple of years have started to really juice the cycle. And it is incredible to be able to see and be part of it. That's exactly the way that I see it. I think, you know, we're kind of in this first like inning of payoff from uh, some early investment and early people kind of seeing Birmingham and its startup community as valuable. You know, Innovation Depot, I think it was like 2007 or 2008. And then the accelerator, the velocity accelerator is just now kind of paying off. And you know, with the exits, it just gives a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs, people like me, the idea that they can do it in Birmingham. And it's possible because you have all examples of that. And so I couldn't be more excited about the the Birmingham ecosystem in general. I think that 
And also now we have all of these people who have exited like yourself, like Shagan, Tony with Fleetio, who are going to help, you know, bring up this next kind of batch of entrepreneurs. So no, that's excellent. I had a question about Birmingham. I'll sub in. Okay, cool. I'll sub in while you think on it. How did you, I don't, are you from Birmingham originally? I'm from a lot of different places. My dad was in the Navy for almost 40 years. And so we moved every two to three years. But prior to Birmingham, I was in Los Angeles for, you know, six, that's six right. years or so. What was your framing for committing to a city? Because I think that's something that's really difficult for a lot of people, especially now, right? In the remote world. I mean, in the remote world, right? Remote world, travel. People are just like hesitant to commit to like really, all right, I'm the Birmingham guy. I'm building the Birmingham ecosystem. Like how did you decide to commit to a city? What are the benefits of really locking it in? So first and foremost, Birmingham is a great place to live. The cost of living, inexpensive compared to a lot of other places around the United States. I mean, we were going to put an offer in a house in LA, that same house, you know, in LA and for it's just not even compare. It's not even comparable, right? So we got a giant, a gigantic house in comparison to what we would have paid like in LA. Close to the family, my, my wife's family lives in Florida. My family lives in Georgia. So kind of split the difference there, Birmingham. I love the outdoors, Alabama and Birmingham in particular. We have Oak Mountain State Park. So I love going out there, swim, bike, run out there. Incredible. It's a really good cycling scene here. So really enjoy doing that. The food scene too, man. Oh gosh, there's some really good food here in Birmingham. And, and I've gone and lived all over the world and just visited all over the world. And there's a little bit of like everything here in regards to food. And that is... So that's what I was going to say earlier is that Birmingham has an amazing food scene because Frank Stitt had an amazing restaurant and everybody, all of his sous chefs, Chris Hastings, et cetera. And I might have that backwards, but it doesn't really matter. The lineage. The, the, <laughs> they went out and they started Blueprint and all these other restaurants. And then those restaurants had sous chefs that learned. And that's why Birmingham is a good food city. And that's why Birmingham will have an amazing entrepreneurial culture because people from these different companies like HVL and, you know, all the ones that we could list are, are going to create more companies. And so, yeah, shout out to the Birmingham food scene for being a, an analogy to the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Birmingham. Yeah, um, and then one the, of our best quotes. No, go ahead. One of the other great things about the South too, and just Birm- in Birmingham in general, is that it's a lot easier to get to people. If you want to be able to get to a decision maker, an influencer, somebody who has clout, somebody that can do something, it's way easier to do it in Birmingham and in the South than it is like in California and Los Angeles. I can't even like get in to speak to someone's assistant a lot of times on the West Coast, you know, but I could look, go talk to the CEO of some company in Birmingham, like, you know, so access, the ability to be able to just live, enjoy yourself and just the proximity and just all the, the final like things that make living great. I mean, it's all here. That's a great, it's so cool to hear someone like that excited about where they live. I love that. Like, again, it's optimism, it's positivity. A little bit more of my question, I guess I feel like maybe I didn't communicate as much is how did you decide to kind of stop the explore, exploit trade-off, right? Like you you were done seeing other cities, Oops. not just that Birmingham, right? It's so amazing. Yeah. Basically, like, you know, I've moved around a bunch of times. I've lived in a lot of places and it's like, what point did you say, okay, I've seen the rest of the world and I've decided that like, I don't need to pick another city anytime soon. Like 
Like, wh- how do you get rid of that? Not get rid of the temptation, but like, it, it's not even it's a appealing. question about women as well. No. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I honestly don't think that it's, you ever get rid of the temptation to go and see other places and do other things. It's just a matter of like, all right, there's a place that you call home. And then there's all these other places that you kind of visit when you need to, when you want that big city feel, all right, I'm going to go to New York or I'm going to go to LA, or I can just go to Atlanta and get the traffic and all this stuff like that, you know, big city, <laughs> like all that I want of it. Right. And so I think it's a matter of finding, for me, it was a matter of finding a really chill base of operations that it's good, good for my family easy to live. Everything is convenient. It's like the people are great. It's just a good base of operations. And then if I want to go to the beach, dude, I go down to Florida and like hang out on the beach 38, like down there. You know, I was weird. I was in the Caribbean for spring break. I was in Aruba, one of the top beaches in the world or whatever. And I was like sitting next to my wife and I was like, it's kind of looks like destiny. She was like, you're right. It does kind of look just like the same white sand, same, you know, blue water, pretty and everything. Same condos, like in the background or whatever, palm trees and all this. So I was like, dude, like you could, I could get this. I didn't have to come to Aruba to like get this, you know? Yeah. I think you realize that too. When you go to like a lot of different places, you, there's a lot to enjoy, like where you are. And I think, you know, maybe some people just don't see it that way. I love that. Grass isn't always greener. Warren Buffett writes his annual letter to his sister. And I think that's a really powerful framing for that letter and and reading it through that context. And one thing you shared with me is that all of the short form content that you are creating on Instagram and, and other social platforms is addressed to your children. And so there's not really much of a question there, but I think that's incredible. Like, how did you come up with that idea and why do you continue to do it? And like, I think if you want to watch this video as good as Instagram. I I don't know. I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of TV and there's all always this thing where it was like, I wish I knew who my parents were because they tragically died or my dad died or my mom died or whatever. And I was like, dang, all right, well, how do I solve for that? So initially what I did was when my children were born, I blogged because blogging was cool at the time. I blogged for like every week of their life, I would write a new blog post about like what I saw, what I was thinking, you know, all that stuff. And I did that for the first year of their life. But then I was like, all right, so what about all the other stuff? And blogging takes a lot of time. You're sitting there like writing it out. I could probably do it a lot easier now with chat GPT, <laughs> but then it just wouldn't be the same, right? It's what would be the same. But so I was like, all right, well, short form video is quick, it's easy. I can get out there with my iPhone and just record 30 seconds of uh, just something. And so last year I sat down and I was like, all right, if I were to die today, what would I want my kids to know about life, about everything? And so I just, I created like 370 some different prompts. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to try this out for a year and just record every single one, every single day. I'm going to, I'm going to drop a new one five days, well, five days a week. I, I don't do it on the weekends, but five days a week, I'm going to drop a new prompts and it's going to do a couple of things. Like first it's going to fulfill the mission of be, me being able to share who I am or who I was to my kids. And then, but I was thinking about this too. I was like, these types of bits and pieces of information are useful to I think anybody. And I think that type of data out there can help in a minute. If you can help one person do something or 
influence them in some form or fashion in a positive way, well then that is awesome. And then for me too, I, I am about learning. I, I know I'm old enough to know now that I don't know everything and then I'll probably never will know everything. I'll probably never be the best at anything, but I can always continue to challenge myself. And so short form video is something that was, that's been popping off. Like it's super popular. I wanted to know how it works. How do you do it? So each one of my videos too, I experiment with something a little different. The latest thing I'm doing is like, what is the effect of dropping a little emoji into the title of the video? How does the, how does the algorithm like assist with that and categorize with that? And that actually, I heard that from somewhere and it actually does do something. It, it does increase the viewer count. I can see like the view count, the average view count, the daily view count, like increase slightly because of that one simple change. So it's learning short form video content too, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it's been awesome to do and it doesn't take very much effort. So Kyle's telling me that you keep pretty detailed analytics of like how well it performs. I do. Are you like iterating and kind of trying to like, what's the utility of that in terms of like, do you think that is signal in terms of like how useful the advice is, or that's just like something to keep you motivated as an analytical person? Yeah, I want to know because this type of information is going to help sales and marketing for other businesses and founders that I interact with that want to leverage short form video, social media as a platform to get their business out there. So if I'm going to be offering advice to companies and founders and startups about sales and marketing and short form video and social media, like that's one thing about me. I want to know that I want to say that, yeah, I've been there, done that. I've tried it. And this is what I've learned from it. This is what I've heard. This is what I've tried. And this is what I actually know about it. And so that's definitely a motivating factor. And yes, I, I keep some detailed information about the analytics from each video to see like what happens. And I change various things like aspects of it. One thing I haven't changed, I haven't upped the quality of it. It's still shot on my iPhone. I don't do that. But I am categorizing the content type and some of the types of things that I say in the backgrounds, because some of that actually matters too. The length of the videos, what kind of music you put back there, if you put music at all, sounds and so forth, what kind of filters you use. There's a lot of considerations that the algorithms like take into play when it comes to how they present your content to the world. That would be an interesting variable, just very like changing the video quality and seeing if it's just keeping that as an independent thing to experiment with. You just turn the camera around and use the, the back facing camera because it's much higher quality. Yeah. We're using this as on the iPhone back camera with like a little easy device that hooks onto the MacBook. It's the, it's the Apple is a big release. We host a podcast. We publish short form content to the extent that your playbook is not, is not closed source. What's like three bullet points you've learned from publishing a high volume of short form? So consistency is rewarded across all the platforms. So if you're consistent with putting your content out there and it is rewarded the most I've found with YouTube, because like I said, I post every day for five days a week. I don't do Saturday and Sunday. I can see this consistent trends of viewing increase. It's like really like low on Monday and then it's steadily increasing like crescendos like on Friday and then I stop and then the cycle starts all over again on Monday, which is interesting. Does not happen like like that on Instagram or TikTok, which is fascinating. So consistency does do something depending upon the platform you're in. Using hashtags, I, I researched that one and it's not as effective, I think, as it used to be. 
even ones that are trending. So you just have to be tra- kind of careful with that. That, that, I think that. I think that's a common misconception is that like, if I use a bunch of these like hashtags that are going to get picked up, whatever, and reviewed or leveraged by the algorithm to get out there, that's not true. I think the single most biggest thing though, across the platforms, at least on Instagram and TikTok, if you want to get big, is to leverage the sponsored content features from those platforms. So you give them money and they will give you followers, views, impressions, all that stuff. I mean, it that truly works. Same thing with leveraging the bot networks too, because there's a lot of people that I've observed and you sign up for 10,000 bots, then you get 10,000 followers. And then the trick behind that is to take the bot network, which gives you kind of instant clout. And because you have the 10,000 followers, it will push you out to more people, real people. And then those people will organically sign up and then you can reduce your reliance on the bot network. Now, if you can look at any of my content, I, don't, I haven't done that. I didn't pay $10 for TikTok just to see what that does. And that does give you followers and views and impressions of likes and all that stuff. Um, but that's the only thing that I've experimented with money-wise thus far. But I do know some people that leverage bot networks to increase their follower counts and their views and impressions and everything. Like I said, they use the strategy to increase their, their views, followers, and then they organically swap those in with real well, I think it's just a lot about you that, you know, you started this as something for your kids and then you turned it into like this analytic project where you're, you know, testing and, and changing it. And you read out 370 prompts at the very beginning and I respect it. I think the last question though here is going to be about Birmingham. Just quickly, favorite restaurant, favorite brewery, maybe favorite, favorite thing to do in Birmingham maybe a local business, if you just want to shout out some Birmingham people. Or oh, startup too. Anything Birmingham-based startups. Yeah. Dude, there's, there's so, like, food-wise, oh, man, you have to give me some food categories. If you say Italian, I would say we'll get, nice I, restaurant. Yeah. I think my favorite nice restaurant is probably, like, a toss-up between probably, like, Helen or Cafe DuPont. Those two. I'd love Pot Not Fish Club as well. And if Highland's open, that would definitely be up there also. But, but Helen is really good. And, and Cafe DuPont is always fantastic. So it's going to be interesting because he's going to go back to New Orleans. And I think his sous chef is going to take it over. So we'll see how, it, how that goes. But when it comes to food, man, like I said, there's so many good places. You'd have to like name, like if you said sushi, I would say Jensei. If you said Italian, I would say either... Gianmarco's or Amore, if you said steak, I hate to call out like the big chains, but I have a fan of like, I have a fan of like Roos Chris and Ed Perry's like steakhouse. But if you say like best pork chop, I would say Perry's for sure. That pork chop is incredible. I don't know if you've ever had it before. Seafood, automatic seafood. They're so freaking good. This stuff is fresh. Best brewery. Man, we got so many breweries in Birmingham. I'd have to go with like the beers that I probably like the best. I mean, good people brewing. I love their IPA. At Brock's Gap, they have something called the Marriage Counselor. Love that thing. It's high gravity. It's really good. <laughs> Avondale, the Miss Fancy's Triple, another high gravity, but it's really tasty. It's really good. Man, there's just, there's so much, there's so much here. So much. It's hard. It's hard. We can chop that up into its own short form, just the Birmingham 
weekend experience. For sure. Right there. I was looking at Kyle and he was saying, I took you there once. I took you there once. I haven't taken you there. Next time you come, I'll take you there. He's kind of saying all that. And I was like, sweet. So lots of overlap here. Well, Matt, th- thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. This is a blast. If there's, you know, if I don't know if these are your Instagram feed is something that's like for your kids or something you are trying to blow up publicly, but this would be a great time to shout that out for people to follow you there. People, again, a best maybe email or LinkedIn if they do have a startup that's within your domain or like they have a call to action relevant to the things you're offering. Where are the places for people to take advantage of those things? Just go to my website, mattj.com. I've got all my links there. So just hit that up. And like I said, if you're a founder of a startup business, whatever that is, you just want somebody to bounce ideas off of, you want somebody's second opinion, you want me to look at your, you know, pitch deck or whatever, be more than happy to do it. It's all part of the mission. Get first, get back. And so just hit me up.